This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion <laughs> medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Rondell Graham, an associate professor of laboratory medicine and pathology in the divisions of anatomic pathology and laboratory genetics and genomics at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're going to discuss the recommendations for a successful start as an academic pathologist. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Graham. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Justin. It's wonderful to be here on your podcast, and I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So, so to kick us off and, and get us talking about success, I think this is a nice kind of time of year in the academic calendar. We've got uh, new trainees that are starting uh, residency, and we've got new faculty that are starting jobs. We have some people that are in their first couple of years of being an academic uh, pathologist. And uh, you strike me as somebody who's been very successful both through training and also in your first couple of years in clinical practice. Maybe we kick off with kind of why. So why is it important for new residents, new attending physicians to be deliberate about how they begin their career? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Justin. Now that I see this podcast on LinkedIn, I feel like I'm part of a famous group. Um, I would say, I think you're absolutely right that this idea of having a deliberate approach to start your career is really important. I think it's important for three reasons. The first reason is that I think a deliberate start, what is implied in that is goals. And I think goals are really critical to having a focus. And that focus helps to determine what are gonna be your priorities and what will not be priority. And this allows you to manage your time effectively. Many people, when they're uh, coming from medical school, they had a schedule that was created by someone and they told them what would happen first and then what would happen next and so on. As you transition into residency and certainly being in a faculty position, you now have to manage your own time. It's a very valuable resource. You'll never be able to make more time. You just have this fixed amount of time. And I think having focus will allow you to establish your priorities. The other very important thing about goals is that they give us a benchmark to measure our progress by. So one of the things that I started out doing as a new faculty person was I set a goal to work on one to two original publications in my first two years on staff. And so I knew that that was a goal and I added some additional clarity to that goal in terms of what I wanted those projects to focus on and I wanted to work with trainees to help develop the next generation of scholarship. And so I added some, you know, some clarity and some details to those goals, but by virtue of having those goals, I can reflect every year on, am I accomplishing those goals? And so I'm able to measure my progress. And I think that's very useful for an, for an individual. The third thing is that I think goals give us a sense of motivation. If you're going to work as a resident, as a fellow, as a new staff person, what can really get your adrenaline going is a sense that, I'm reaching for this particular target, I'm going after this particular thing, and it can energize you. And of course, goals are usually things that we enjoy, they're things we're looking forward to. And that energy, I think, is really crucial to, for people to succeed. There's an expression that goes, uh, whether you think you can succeed or not, you're absolutely right. 
and the, by setting goals, it gives you that energy that makes you feel, oh, I can do this, I'm on my way to something. And so I think this is why it's so important for people starting a new job or starting in practice or starting a residency or fellowship to set up some goals for yourself. You know, let me ask a follow-up into this uh, answer that you just gave. I think there's a lot of insight there about goals, bringing focus, so you can get your priorities straight, um, so you really have some motivation. I think those are really wonderful key points. One of the things that I think you hit on this in the very beginning part when you were answering is about how when somebody's in training, there's a lot that's decided for them, and they're in, in a very... Um, uh, I don't know if it's right to say supportive environment, but a lot of things are predetermined. Right. And then like you're saying in residency that opens up quite a bit and certainly completely wide open when we get to coming on staff somewhere. Can you give us a little bit of insight about, you know, these goals that you're talking about one to two original publications. These are, these are kind of longer term goals. Like you said, you know, in the first two years. And so, on a smaller scale, how, how do you set yourself up so you can kind of be consistent in making that progress? What is your process like? That's a really interesting question, Justin. Thanks for that. So right behind me, you'll see a whiteboard. And maybe people can't see that on the podcast video. But I have a whiteboard where I brainstorm. And I, um, I kind of collect ideas that I have. And I polish them over time. And so I erase things. I, I sometimes draw some mind maps. And so there's some ideas that I lay out in my mind about things that I feel interested in, things that I'm curious about, things that I'm passionate about. And then I kind of like polish it over time. I get feedback from mentors to try to refine which of these really has the best potential. Uh, and then I kind of distill down on that and then pick the best ones and move forward. And so you're asking an important question, how do we, how do we you know, develop this a little bit more? So some of this is having an instrument or a tool that allows you to be able to like map out your ideas, what are ideas that are straightforward, what are more complex, what is the time horizon like for this kind of idea, and mentorship is a really crucial element for this. Many residency programs now will have a, a formal mentorship program, but also many of the pathology societies have a mentorship program, so the USCAP has one, the ASCP has one, and I'm sure the others do, and there are also informal programs and some organic ones that develop around shared interests and shared values. Those could be invaluable as setting up that roadmap mentally for your goals. One thing I will say about goals is that I think it's good to have a portfolio of goals. Uh, so in the context of a research, pro research project, all of your projects when you're starting out are not gonna be focused on the highest impact journals you could imagine. There are gonna be some that are straightforward, there are gonna be some that are more complex. And that portfolio allows you in a finance sense to reduce your risk. All your eggs are not in one basket. And so by having a portfolio of goals with different deadlines and different payoffs, you layer that success, you layer the effort and the motivation. So you always have something you're working on, but you also have something that's working out. And so that's a good strategy, I think, um, with those goals and how to develop these papers and these ideas. I love that idea of a portfolio of goals. I Traditionally, I've thought about portfolios for something for like art students, but uh, you know, now in our training programs, we're talking about our trainees developing clinical portfolios. And so I really like your idea of constructing a portfolio of, of goals. Yeah. Let me ask you, are you 
pretty deliberate about revisiting where you are uh, monthly or quarterly or how, how do you kind of check yourself? I have two approaches to this, which, which, uh, which, which, which kind of work differently. I do have an annual kind of recap. And so I kind of work on a November to November system. The nice thing about that is that my December holidays are free. Um, but I have, a, I have a November recap of the prior year. And I kind of systematically do that where I recap where I am in terms of uh, professionally. Is I try to look at my professional work in the context of my whole life. So that there's a high degree of integration um, between my professional life, what I do for work, and what I do outside of work. And I think that includes things like wellness, healthy activities, uh, the way that you care for your family, the way that you care for people that you love. Um, so I kind of do that on an annual basis, kind of in a November time frame. But I do have these periodic check-ins um, with mentors. And so um, the way our, my mentors work with me is mentorship is kind of mentee driven and I have a check-in with them at least every quarter on how things are going um, and that is kind of a little bit more loose because it doesn't go through everything it just kind of focuses on the quarter that just ended and maybe the quarter that is to come but I also think one of the things that happens to me and probably happens to you probably happens to our listeners is you encounter something that you say I did not see that coming and whenever I encounter something like where well, I did not see that coming, that's usually a good opportunity for me to take some steps back and say, what, am I, what do I need to think about here in terms of how I'm doing things? I'll give you a real example. So the pandemic came with all of its challenges um, and that we started to face you know, you know, early March and extending into April. And I began to notice in April that I was putting on some weight. And, I was, and what I said to myself is I did not see that coming and so i said well i need to kind of examine during this pandemic how am i how am i addressing my physical activity with all the changes that are coming how am i going to address that and so i think it's useful when you encounter things you're like hmm what am i going to do about this so one of the things that keeps me in check is when i encounter the unexpected is asking myself what about my underlying assumptions what about my schedule do i need to address that's excellent um I wonder if we can kind of uh, shift a little bit and kind of do a little bit of compare and contrast and, sure. you know, your, your success uh, as a resident and then your success as an attending, um, you know, what, what sort of things are similar that's good advice for both in what are things that are specific to the resident versus the attending? Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think what's layered into your question there, Justin, is that sometimes what got you to point A won't get you to point B. I think that's really true in life. Um, so I think um, the things that work on, uh, in both dimensions, the dimension of being a trainee and the dimension of being a staff person is hard work. I don't think there's a substitute for hard work. Um, I think the more you work, I think the more you'll develop, the more you'll develop your skills. Um, so I think hard work is probably universal. One thing that's very different is that I think um, under faculty, you are really self-directed. And you need to know how to work with a, an assistant and how to delegate. And as a trainee, you don't have an assistant and you don't delegate to anyone, typically. You just do everything yourself. But those are critical skills as a new person on staff 
to develop a trusting relationship with an assistant and to allow them to extend your capabilities. So they, will help, they can help you manage your calendar, which is crucial because your calendar is an instrument that allows you to do things, which all jobs want you to do things. So your assistant can help you execute there. And if you set up some clear boundaries, 30 minutes for this, one hour for this, your assistant can actually help drive your productivity. So a really key skill once you uh, start in a staff position or as a faculty position is the ability to delegate to other people and to learn how to work with an assistant. One of the things that strikes me in this, and this kind of hits a, a spot for me, and I'm not sure where, where we're going to go with this question that I have for you, but uh, as I evaluate uh, trainees, I notice that on our milestones, there is that component about delegating work. Uh -huh. um, you know, uh, does, you know, in terms of like, you know, I think that like the um, more of a basic level, it's, you know, the uh, trainee is prioritizes their work, gets their work accomplished. But I think the higher level on that is uh, delegates work. Uh, which is something I totally agree with you that, you know, this, this skill is critical to have when coming on staff, either in an academic setting or in clinical practice, I think, or in, in a uh, uh, non-academic setting. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. What are your thoughts on, with the trainees that you have, is there a way that you prepare them for that? I'm thinking about your maybe senior residents that you've got involved, uh, that you're mentoring up. Uh, how are you helping them uh, develop this skill of uh, delegating appropriately and, and how to follow up on things that have been delegated? Great question. How do we develop that skill in training? I think when, when I was a trainee, I, I did not myself. I personally didn't focus on it enough, and so I kind of had to uh, learn it on the job. I think two ways in which we... we we kind of help trainees with this presently, and two ways in which I'm working on this with the trainees that I work with, is I think we do this by instruction, and we do this by example. And so one of the ways I do this by example um, is I kind of let the trainees who are working with me on projects into how I am working through that. And so I set up meetings, um, usually a 30-minute meeting, to let them know how I'm thinking about this. How is this gonna come together, the various pieces? the IRB, the biospecimen, what's this idea is going to look like. Sometimes we get together and we talk about what are the figures going to look like and who's going to do what and who I will ask to do what. And I do uh, uh, work with them with my assistant so they have an insight into how I do this uh, because I think you're right. I think uh, people do learn a lot from example. And so I try to let them into my process so they don't work in a silo. They see how I do it. And, and I, I'm pretty open with letting them know these are the ways I do things in terms of projects. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the only way. Right. And so they can kind of learn from my patterns there. I think in terms of instruction, you're right. I haven't been as intentional about that. Saying, okay, well, you can delegate this or, or that. I have had a few projects with multiple trainees 
with a more senior one working with a more junior one, where it would ask the more senior one to help them have the more junior one do something and vice versa. And that's worked really well. Um, and this goes to the whole idea of coaching teamwork. Um, I think layered into what you're saying and is really important is that we really need to be intentional about it. I think that's really key. I love that example on where you have uh, multiple trainees on a project because that's, that's a gorgeous uh, situation, a prime opportunity for somebody to practice those skills uh, in a safe environment and to get feedback uh, from you. Yeah, and I have to give the trainees credit because they did an exceptional job with it. And I was really impressed with their maturity um, in working through that. Um, there was no clash of egos. They understood their respective roles and really collaborated well. And uh, what I noticed from that, from their own admission and their own experience, they learned things from each other, which to me was a major deliverable from that project. They, mm. they actually learned something from each other. Absolutely. The, the uh, fruits of research is not only the research itself. Yeah, absolutely, Justin. Brilliant. Can I go back to, I made a note you said something earlier. You, you, you said that uh, sometimes things take you by surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of an opportunity, I think, uh, you were saying to really kind of critically reflect, and, and that's a learning opportunity. And so, uh, you know, uh, from the outside, you, you appear to be as somebody that has, uh, you know, had really navigated these systems quite well. I'm curious, just to kind of lay it all out there, what's been easy uh, about this process of training and being an academic pathologist? What's been easy for you? And what's really been a challenge where maybe you've actually been surprised two or three times about the same issue? Interesting. Well, what's easy, that comes first, because I know what's easy is, I'm, so by nature, I am energized by people, so I'm an extrovert by nature, and so what's been easy is working in multidisciplinary teams. I enjoy it and the input we get from clinical colleagues, both at the bedside and then other part, parts of the laboratory space. That's been really fulfilling and fantastic. There's a great team of clinical, and research, clinical experts and research experts at Mayo, and it's a lot of fun to be a part of it. And we have people who are not directly clinical and they're not directly research, but they may support the uh, information technology component to the practice or the educational component of practice. It's great to work with people. We have a lot of people committed to, I think, a really ambitious, and wonderful vision. And so I love that. That's easy for, for me to be a part of. I think what's, challenge, what's been challenging for me is that change takes time. And so there's some things that you just have to be very patient with, but you have to slow walk. Um, and I, I think that that's been that's been a challenge. That's been a challenge for me, uh, uh, you know, in some of the responsibilities that I've had. How do we set this up in a way that we we can still we can move forward with it, but acknowledge that it won't be finished next month. It won't be finished two weeks from now. It may be a three month process. It may be a one year process. I think one of the things that's really important in in a faculty position is being uh, uh, comfortable with being patient, um, being willing to kind of work through some, some longer processes. Sometimes that's a project, sometimes that's a new test implementation, sometimes it's a new care process model. Being patient is a really important skill. It's difficult because wouldn't we all love it if the things we wanted to happen happen right away? Um, but, it, but I think being patient is important, but it's difficult. It can be challenging. 
Absolutely. I'm curious, uh, you know, uh, maybe this is um, a question you're seeing coming, but I'm curious, uh, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently this time? Oh, that's a great question. If I could do it all over again, what would I do? I think there are probably two things I could do again if I could do them um, if I could do them differently. Uh, number one, I would have visited with m more of the colleagues who I would join in on the time. I trained here, of course. I, I would have visited with more of them um, to try to get their feedback on what it is like joining as a new staff person and to communicate my interest in working with them, not necessarily on projects, but just kind of as a colleague. I think one of the challenges training this working the same place that you train for residency is that that sometimes can be uh that can be uh an awkward transition because just one day ago you were a trainee and the next day you're a colleague like what what happened and i think uh, sometimes that can you know people, people can feel a little bit awkward about it and i think i could have broken the ice better by reaching out to many more people of course we have we have a very large practice um so you know that's logistically a little bit challenging but i think that would have been more you know i think it would have made some of those initial interactions more fun and more laid back for example as a trainee you call everybody dr so-and-so dr brown dr green dr white but when you're on staff what do you call them now <laughs> and so like it kind of like smooth things over so that's the one thing that i would do i think i might do different the other thing i would do um different in the beginning, one of the things that I thought a lot about was, okay, what do I need to do to kind of like fit in? I remember spending some months on that. And I think that, I think that was probably not quite the right way to think about And so eventually I abandoned that approach. Uh, I decided, because I think the, it, the important thing is to be as authentic as possible, but you want to do it in a way that is of course characterized by empathy and all the male clinic values. But a key component is that you want there to be this deep level of authenticity. And so like in the beginning, you're thinking, well, what do I do that would hopefully not rock the boat here? What do I do that would hopefully keep, make everybody happy? And I think that that generally doesn't work. I think that, I think that approach, having tried it for a few months, it mostly creates anxiety on your part, the individual's part, and other people's part. I think um, it's really important to approach things with authenticity. And by, to give you an example of what I mean by that, instead of like trying to sign out to fit in, you can ask people questions about, this is what I think about this. Let me know what you think. Would this be a reasonable approach? Would this be an acceptable approach? Um, I think that that's a good, uh, a good thing to do. I also think in today's world, I think we're seeing it, you know, certainly in our lifetime, it seems like there's never been a time to be more present and to be more, to stand up more and to speak out more. And I think sometimes we can feel shy about saying things or getting involved with things, whatever they may be, right? Um, so some of those things may surround issues like things that we're seeing kind of in the national space or things that we're seeing in the practice. But I think our authentic voice is really important. I think these issues happening in our cultural context show the importance of having that authentic voice. And so if that was something I could do over, I would, I would certainly do that, you know, kind of uh, rather than try to see what is going to help me get under the radar, if that were possible, I would see where can I make a contribution here? Is that because I know that's kind of a long-winded answer. 
Oh, I, I, I love that answer. I, I mean, I, I think that I couldn't agree with you more. The idea that how important authentic relationships are. Um, I, I know in my area of transfusion medicine, that's one of my big um, uh, challenges is I think the residents that are coming through and, and they're going to be on a rotation for, you know, a few months there's not necessarily the time to develop these relationships with some of the clinicians. And so that for them to understand that being a transfusion doc is not uh, all the time, uh, you know, policing blood products and confrontation. Right. Right. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, clit clinical collaboration uh, that actually brings uh, my life a lot of meaning. Absolutely. And uh, how you come to realize that are these longer term uh, yep. relationships. And so I think that's quite insightful, actually, to, to kind of realize that, uh, you know, I think all of us being kind of humans and social animals, whenever we get to a new situation or context, it's always, uh, you know, what are the social norms in this space, which I think are important to be perceptive of but i think to your point you know you really need to put yourself uh, out there so that you can find out how you can really contribute and for the students listening i mean absolutely uh it, to fly under the radar um that's uh not a way to really get that feedback on how you can be your best and i can imagine uh, once you're coming on staff, also, if you're flying under the radar, you're not developing these relationships, you're not contributing to the practice the, the way you possibly could, I suppose. Do you, do you kind of uh, see it as a lost opportunity? Um, yeah, I fully agree with you. I think you put it in an excellent way. I think the, the power of authenticity is, is in developing relationships. If your relationships have depth to them, you can get feedback on your contribution um, that, is, that is authentic and that is actionable, certainly if you inquire about it, once you have those kinds of relationships and it sets up for long-term collaboration. For trainees, it helps them get feedback on their performance and allows them to develop a, a mentor-mentee relationship that potentially can endure for a long period of time and really address what may be on their minds um, in terms of what fellowship to go into, what job to accept, how to make choices in their career, um, how do they manage priorities that, they, that may be competing, whether they be a um, specific research project with their remaining training, if it be priorities at home and priorities at work and so on. I think you handle that excellently. It's all about being authentic so you can develop relationships because everything in the end, almost everything operates by virtue of trust and influence. So we can control very few things. Certainly there's some positions in, in, in an institution that are imbued with power and so they have authority that they can expect compliance. But the vast majority of the work happens by relationship and influence. That is of course driven by trust, which requires authenticity. So I, I think you captured that perfectly. I really appreciate it. I think uh, for our listeners, I mean, you've shared some wonderful insights for students, for new faculty, uh, everybody who's looking for success. I think for the clinicians who are not pathologists that are listening, I think maybe a key message to hear out of this podcast, Dr. Graham is saying that there are plenty of pathologists uh, out there that are fantastic collaborators uh, for doing Absolutely. some high-powered research and to, to reach out to your pathology uh, colleagues. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, 
thank you so much. We've been rounding with Dr. Rondell Graham on how to have a successful start as an academic pathologist. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us and share your insights, Dr. Graham. Thanks so much, Justin. This has been a lot of fun. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.